This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Did you know that cyclists who ride a minimum of three hours a week have a 28% lower risk of all-cause mortality than non-cyclists? Shouldn't your life insurance premiums reflect that? Health IQ is an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like cyclists, runners, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com mtb. Or mention the promo code MTB when you talk to a Health IQ agent today. Stay tuned for more information partway through this episode. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. This episode of the podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of the Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam, and Squamish peoples. Whether you live, work, ride, or maintain trails in North America, then you're probably on traditional territory. And it's important to recognize that history. We often refer to ourselves as stewards of the land, but part of that stewardship should be recognizing the people who either occupy or previously occupied that space. And in the case of the latter, the term previously occupied is really a much softer way of saying forcibly removed. Even the term North America is a colonized term for what the indigenous people of the northeastern woodlands, most notably the Iroquois, refer to as Turtle Island. As a quick exercise in our indigenous history, I took a list of indigenous languages in North America and cross-referenced it with my list of mountain bike trail associations. There are 23 trail associations that have the name of an indigenous language in their organization's title. That's without taking spelling variations into account, of which there are many. That's also not taking into account band or tribe names or other indigenous words. This episode, we explore the value of names, the value of relationships, and how we as an occupier of traditional territory can begin the process of reconciliation. It's okay if being labeled an occupier makes you feel uncomfortable or even defensive. What's important is what we do next. I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 42 of Frontlines. Over the next two episodes, we'll hear from two guests, one coming from the United States and the second from Canada. And our shared border has meant variations of nomenclature. And during my conversation over the next two episodes, that will be apparent. To help us with this, I thought it would be best to use a quote from the latest recommendation in the Frontlines Book Club. The Inconvenient Indian, a curious account of native people in North America. Here's Thomas King's words. Quote, when I was a kid, Indians were Indians. Sometimes Indians were Mohawk or Cherokees or Crees or Blackfoot or Clinket or Seminoles. But mostly, they were Indian. Columbus gets blamed for the term, but he wasn't being malicious. He was looking for India and thought he had found it. He was mistaken, of course, and as time went on, various folks and institutions tried to make the matter right. Indians became Amerindians and Aboriginals and Indigenous people and American Indians. Lately, Indians have become First Nations in Canada and Native Americans in the United States. 
But the fact of the matter is that there has never been a good collective noun because there has never been a collective to begin with. End quote. As a reminder, you can purchase the latest recommendation in the book club by visiting the book club page at frontlinesmtb.com. Along with Amazon, you can support the show via their associates program, where a portion of your purchase will go directly to the podcast. Now on with the show. For this episode, my guest is Len Nessifer. He's a Navajo mountaineer and CEO of Natives Outdoors. Hi, Len. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, happy to be here. So some of my listeners might be familiar with uh, with your effort at restoring traditional names to, to wild places, uh, often used currently for for recreation. And before we we dive into that, and and dive into the kind of the what and the how of of how you're doing that, I, I'd like to know from you why are traditional names so important? I think one of the most the reason why they're so important is that it's just a very subtle tweak to. I guess, undo the erasure of Native people that's occurred in a lot of lands, both here in the U.S. and Canada. And, um, you know, the one way that that's happened the quickest is through basically placing names of, um, in some cases, genocidal generals or different folks that have done pretty horrible things to Native people. And so that's, in a way, it's one to educate, but it's also a very soft way to engage some of this history as well. You're using the the geotagging ability of of social media like Instagram and and Facebook to do this. Uh, how did this all get started? You know, it was it's it's funny that you asked that. I was actually in um, British Columbia. I was I was hanging out in um, Fernie uh, last summer, and I remember driving around Banff and in that area, and I remember seeing. Um, a number of the provincial parks having uh, the indigenous indigenous names of these places on the signage, and I just thought that was I was like, wow, that's amazing, and that's the why isn't this happening everywhere? And you know, I came back to my home in Colorado, and I started looking into some of the history of the Front Range. Uh, just for context, I'm from. My people are from the Four Corners region of the United States. So this is New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, and I'm from the Navajo Nation. So my ancestral homelands are not in the front range of Colorado where, where Denver is. And so part of my learning was having to learn about the indigenous history of another native people in the area. And, um, and that's the Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Ute, and a number of others as well. But in the mountains specifically, that's where I was looking yeah, so I, I basically came home and, and started doing some literature searches on Google Scholar, and I started looking at other sorts of resources, but I was just curious. And um, the more I looked, the more it was it was pretty difficult to find resources that had these names because the Front Range of Colorado, the indigenous people had been removed from the area for over 100 years. And so it was just, you know, it was very sparse. But, you know, one of the things that came out of it was a really cool anthropological study that was done in the early 1900s um, that was republished by a professor at CU Boulder that documented the names of uh, about 300 place names of, from Arapaho elders in Rocky Mountain National Park. thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool if instead of, you know, pulling up the name for like Long's Peak when you're on top of the mountain or, you know, whatever it may be, it also, you could get the option of pulling up the Arapaho name as well. And so I just started fiddling around with how to create these geotags. And I I made one for Long's Peak and 
I had, I've actually climbed the mountain before, but one of my, one of my friends was going up the next day and I said, Hey, can you have the indigenous name of this mountain on a, you know, piece of cardboard if you go to the top and take a picture and then check in there. And so she did. It was just one of those things that I just, you know, I didn't think much of it. I just thought, Oh, well, this is a cool project. It's going to be a lot of work too. So since that point, I've basically filled out that list of names from that study uh, back in the 1900s. I've, I've geotagged those locations throughout the park. And then I've kind of been looking elsewhere and just, you know, doing what I can where I can and making sense, uh, you know, doing it where it's appropriate. And I think that's the one thing that, you know, I'm quite aware of is that for, you know, some Native people, these names are sacred and it doesn't make, it doesn't, uh, in some instances, it's not respectful to actually tag these on social media. And so um, part of the work is also just consulting with um, community leaders and people in the community that know about these concerns and, you know, can advise accordingly. So Natives Outdoors has been called a, a social media effort, a brand, a clothing company. But in your words, what's the best way to describe what Natives Outdoors is? Yeah, so... uh <laughs> It's we're serving a lot of different roles right now, but I mean our sort of bread and butter is that we're a we're a company and we we use our product as a form of advocacy, and the idea of what we're doing is basically to um, one create a create a footprint for Indigenous people in the outdoor industry, um, and so with our company we design and sell products mainly soft goods. And we try to um, use Native companies, Native artists, as much as we can through the supply chain. Native artists, for example, design our, some of our artwork. And, and really the idea there is just to create the opportunity for folks to, you know, if this is the sort of career path that they want to take, that this is an entry point that we can provide. Um, and then the products and the, how it does advocacy is that... Um, one, there's a story to tell about that, but then we also are we try to donate as much of the profits as we can. Um, we're at least committed to five percent, but this past year we've been doing closer to ten or fifteen, and we donate that money to native nonprofits that work in the space of outdoor recreation, conservation, and language and cultural revitalization. The idea is that um, we're providing a new source of funding for these organizations to support their missions and then also just try to broaden the sort of ability of these different organizations to find unique sources of funding. And so, yeah, we're in, in, in essence, we're trying to create a virtuous cycle. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that's where, that's kind of our, our product side. And then on the advocacy side, uh, you know, one part of my work is I, I used to work for the U S department of energy and I worked directly with tribes, and I also worked um, a lot on policy issues facing tribes and energy issues. And um, uh, I left that job uh, in December, largely because of the election. <laughs> and, uh, you know, basically, I'm using, still utilizing those skills to leverage change for Native people in the outdoor industry as well, which here in the United States, and I'm sure in Canada as well, like, you know, there's not really a regulatory mechanism for the outdoor industry that exists for other places like energy or other sectors. And so really what, what changes policy and, and norms in this industry is changing public opinion and also influencing companies as well. And so my policy work has been doing a lot in that regard. And so part of that is, you know, addressing 
practices of cultural appropriation, which has been a big concern and something, a topic that's come up here and something that I've actually discussed with MEC and they're implementing policies to um, combat that. And so our idea is that we're then providing a product that can work with indigenous communities in a way that is not extractive, but instead builds up these communities in a meaningful way. And then the other is that we've been working a lot here in the United States on um, the issues of public lands, Bears Ears in particular, which was a national monument that was proposed by five tribes, and that got rescinded largely on um, because of extractive industries uh, lobbying the current administration. And so our our work is to begin to unify and align the voices of the na- native people and the outdoor industry in that regard. So anyways, that's kind of like the big picture of what we do. Just going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Len Nesifer. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Health IQ saves its customers up to 33% because physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. If approved, Health IQ will use information like race and event registrations and your ride log information from websites like Strava, Trailforks, or MapMyRide to secure you with a better rate on life insurance. Just like a clean driving record will get you lower car insurance, Health IQ helps those living an active, healthy lifestyle pay less for life insurance. And Health IQ doesn't just generate leads and forward you to an insurer. They walk you through the entire journey, from answering any initial questions to starting an application, going through underwriting, all the way to when your policy is signed and official. Learn more and get a free quote at Health IQ MTB. Or mention the promo code MTB when you talk to a Health IQ agent today. You've mentioned it already, but cultural appropriation is is something that I think many have have heard of, and 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 I I hesitate to say familiar with because it it really depends on a, a person's perspective, especially whether or not your your own culture is being uh, taken or or uh, or whether you're taking or or, or being taken from. But uh, does the mountain bike industry using a word like tribe justify a conversation about cultural appropriation? Is this word simply a creative, marketable? Word? word for for a community or and and I'm obviously speaking as a as a white man here is this word simply just not mine to use you know I think one of the one of the things about the use of for example tribe I'll I'll talk about that first because that's kind of pervasive through the industry is that I really just see it as being a reflection of how much um, folks don't know about native people and that the legal and political implications of that particular term, there's quite a lot. It's quite a loaded term. And, you know, for a lot of Native people up until quite recently, I mean, even now, I mean, there's just there's been so much of a struggle to have political and legal autonomy and recognition. And, and, and tribe has been the word in which we've used to leverage that. And there's a lot of weight and meaning. And, you know, I think the other is that by the use the use of that word basically erases a lot of that effort and um the other is that you can't deny that most of the recreation that we do is occurring on the ancestral homelands of many native people and the creation of the lands that we have the public land systems and why we can recreate it has been predicated on the removal and erasure of native people from those areas and so it's just 
I just, I just think it's unfortunate, but I also just see it reflective of that. Most people just aren't aware of that or don't think about that history when they use that word or when they're recreating. So more than anything, like, you know, I think now if people are listening and hear this and now, you know, <laughs> um, and it's, it's basically the balls out of my court in a way and that, you know, it's now up to people's actions from here on out. And now that they know that that's the implications when it comes to cultural appropriation, you know, that's, 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 it is a, it is a pretty loaded term. And, you know, it's one that here in this country has been put pretty um, divisive and, and, you know, part of one of the, one of the arguments that I, I hear from folks as well, like every culture appropriates and every uh, group of people does, uh, you know, does that. And, you know, I, I don't deny that, but I think, I think, one of the one of the pieces that this goes back to is that you have to look at how this happens in the larger context of the history that we just happen to inherit. You know, Native people have had um, lands forcibly taken. There's been a forcible effort to remove the cultural connections to this land through residential schools and other, other efforts to erase culture. And the one thing that has been able to be maintained are these traditional, this tr- these traditional and customary practices and um, craftsmanship and things like that. And you know, for a lot of Native communities, it's significant. Both one, you know, on a moral level, there's it's the context of you know Native people have already had had a lot taken, so why do we continue to take more from them? But on a more economic level, I mean, for many Native communities, this is the one. Um, source of direct income um, is from artwork and designs. And so when those designs are used or taken and the economic benefit does not go to those communities, it basically continues the cycle that, um, um, you know, Native communities are trying to and want to be self-sufficient. But when these things happen, it it basically puts another barrier um, for these communities to do so. And so you know, it's, it's unfortunate it's happening, but what's really exciting is that, you know, uh, there's a number of companies and, uh, that are looking to change that. One is Mac Mountain Equipment Co-op. A few weeks ago, I had a really interesting conversation with their, um, chief governance officer, her name's Shona, and, um, Mech is actually implementing a policy where they're not going to be sourcing goods from companies that have, um, or they're not going to be sourcing products from companies um, that have any hint or any tinge of cultural appropriation. So if there's a design or um, other some other, some other use of of imagery or whatever that could be taken from a native community, they're going to ask those companies to provide documentation that one the community in question retains copyright, and then two that the community in question also is the largest beneficiary of this product and that three that you know someone from that community designed this product so i mean that's and if they can't meet that standard mac is actually not going to be purchasing those products and for me i mean the way that plays out is that my mom is a rug weaver a navajo rug weaver and one navajo rug designs uh you can easily google what those look like are starting to become very popular in the outdoor industry and um, I've seen companies like Smartwool use them on socks. I've seen other companies like Static Climbing Bags use those designs on chalk bags. You know, there's no recognition of where those designs are coming from. And, 
you know, that's problematic because, you know, we've already been erased from the land in a big way. But if we're erased from our traditional and cultural designs, that's like the next step that can be very damaging. And, you know, quite honestly, from my experience, I think, you know, just simply presenting it as an economic case of like, this is basically hurting communities. And this is also, you know, I think morally, it's just sort of recreating history that, you know, we all can say that was not great. And um, a lot of companies are very receptive to it. And so what we're trying to do as a company is provide and demonstrate a model of how do you work with indigenous communities and, you know, showcase designs if it's appropriate for the community um, in outdoor products and apparel. So it's a it's a learning process, and I think even for us as a you know a native run company, we have to we have to be quite aware of you know boundaries and you know be in a position of asking questions rather than just doing things and asking for forgiveness later. That's just not a good business practice in this regard. I think what's really exciting is, you know, I talked about the removal of indigenous people from the land, but, you know, one of the ways that that's kind of affecting us now is that so much of our cultural traditions and the identity of who we are as a people are tied to places and landscapes. And because of the history that we've inherited, you know, a lot of younger kids, younger folks don't have that same connection to the land as their grandparents or their great-grandparents did. And Part of that for my community is that, you know, historically we've been a big ranching and farming community, but because of mining and because of other like commodities and different things that have basically disrupted that particular economy, um, a lot of young folks aren't growing up um, with much attachment to the place that they grew up in. And, And so part of our work in our communities is trying to look at how can outdoor recreation be a vehicle for learning cultural traditions and learning these, this knowledge that ties people to the land? You know, I think it's, it's a good vehicle for that. And it, it's one that's fun, it's engaging. And, but also I think the challenge that we've been facing is like, how do we then take this next step and like start looking at, you know, how can, how can this be a vehicle for, for education? And there's a number of organizations out there that are doing some really cool stuff. I've, I'm a mountain biker as well, uh, and that's kind of where I started. And, you know, on the Navajo Nation, there's you can make tons of single track out there. Um, I, that's what I did when I was a kid, you know, just to kill time and, and uh, stay out of trouble. Uh, but one of the organizations that I got involved with later in grad school was called Navajo Yes, but they teach kids uh, how to ride and fix bikes, and then they do a pretty big multi-day bike trip across the Navajo Nation at the end of the summer after they've basically done a bunch of skill building. But I've been participating with them in a um, mountain bike race near my home community. And it it was just such a cool connection to one, be able to, you know, have this race on these roads that I used to like actually ride on when I was a kid. And it was, it's just kind of a cool connection. And I, I, I see a lot of um, promising things coming up. And so so for our company, we're just simply just trying to be that presence in the industry side and then also connecting organizations like that with other organizations that are organizations and companies that um, are pretty well established. Excellent. That's that's fantastic. How can how can people have a look at what you're doing? We're on Instagram. Our handle is Natives Outdoors. That's our social media handle across all our platforms. And our website is www.nativesoutdoors-org. And that's actually our storefront. So you can see our products on there. We're going to actually be releasing some chalk bags and um, some other products in this next uh, couple of months. So 
uh, it'll be an exciting time for us uh, as we sort of ramp up what we're doing. I'll definitely include some links in the in the show notes. And, and Len, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I really, really appreciate you reaching out and making this happen. Len mentioned a youth program called Navajo Yes, and it's a great segue into next episode's guest, Patrick Lucas. Patrick is the founder of the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program, and we'll be discussing his best practices and guidelines for engaging and working with Indigenous people on trails and outdoor recreation projects. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can send me an email or audio file to info at FrontlinesMTB.com. You can stream the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And if you haven't done so already, leave us a review. It helps others find the podcast. In the show notes, you can find a link to the Frontlines MTB Book Club. A portion of any purchase made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast via their affiliate program. And don't forget, you can also support the show via PayPal. The podcast is made possible through contributions by listeners like you. In the show notes, you'll find various links to the Natives Outdoors, along with an article about Len in Outside Magazine, and the Navajo Yes program that Len mentioned. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere, production notes by Jennifer Pride, and artwork is created by Brendan Gallagher-Watson, BGW Creative. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening. Happy trails. <laughs>